the Chicago spirit. Organized crime is a dark yet fascinating aspect of human history, spread across the globe for hundreds of years, from pirates in the Caribbean to the triads of Hong Kong. If there are laws, there are going to be people who break them, and if there is profit to be found in breaking those laws, they'll find it. The city of Chicago has a very interesting history with organized crime, especially during the Prohibition era in the 1920s and 30s, in which alcoholic beverages were banned nationwide. It's this location and mostly this period we'll be looking at today, in which a group of organized criminals in Chicago utilize anomalies in their pursuit of power and wealth. The leader of the group known as the Chicago Spirit was a man named Richard David Chappell, a reality bender, who immigrated to Chicago with his parents when he was two in 1873. The first recorded incident showing his anomalous capabilities was when he was 11, when a witness reported seeing Chappell somehow exsanguinating a rival newspaper boy. The boy's body was recovered in the Chicago River the next day, but police didn't pursue the case, and Chapel would later claim the death to be an accident. The Chicago Spirit itself started as a bar in 1893, but made little revenue after two years of business, so Chapel had the idea to start a side business on the second floor, selling unnatural novelties. Many of these novelties would be created by Chapel himself, and it's believed that the Chicago Spirit would sell over 600 anomalies during the subsequent years. This venture turned out to be quite a bit more successful than the bar, and it attracted a number of wealthy collectors and members of Chicago's elite. Chapel continued to keep this side of his business as much of a secret as possible, and never used his own anomalous capabilities around others. In time, the Chicago spirit became a more openly criminal endeavor, expanding into extortion, robbery, and attacks on rival business owners. By 1899, Chapel employed over 400 people, and locals began to refer to his organization as the Chicago spirit, naming it after the group's headquarters. Most of the people in the organization were, of course, common criminals, but the leaders of the Chicago spirit were all anomalous themselves, much like Chapel. According to local tradition, Chapel would routinely walk the streets of Chicago in search of people with anomalous capabilities. Over the next year, the organization would continue to grow and make a name for itself among Chicago's criminal underworld, utilizing anomalous objects as part of their operations. The foundation existed during this time period, but lacked the full resources to properly contain the group. Other criminal groups within Chicago mostly kept their distance from the Chicago spirit, notably the leader of the Chicago outfit, Al Capone, who wanted nothing to do with them after witnessing a failed raid against the group. The Chicago spirit continued to grow throughout the 1920s, controlling a number of speakeasies throughout the country during the Prohibition era. Records indicate that from 1921 to 1933, the Chicago Spirit was the largest anomalous crime syndicate in the Western Hemisphere. Things came to a sudden end in 1933, however, when the Foundation had learned that Chapel's reality-bending powers had weakened, and they launched a raid on his home. Sure enough, the raid was successful, and Chapel was placed into containment along with 155 anomalies pulled from his personal collection. 
The Chicago spirit all but crumbled apart after the capture of their leader, with only a certain few remaining loyal to the group until the anomalies they possessed were picked up by Marshall Carter and Dark in 1938. In 2008, a collection of private journals were recovered by the Foundation, allegedly written by Chapel. The journals frequently mention a Mr. Knight, who apparently was the actual anomalous individual that made the Chicago spirit possible, with Chapel possessing no anomalous properties himself. According to Chapel, this Mr. Knight individual had abruptly quit the organization in 1933, changed his name, and fled the country, allowing the capture of Chapel. No other documents exist supporting the existence of this Mr. Knight, but Chapel continued to insist that he was his partner. Let's continue on and take a look at some of the anomalies that the Chicago Spirit have been involved with, now contained by the Foundation. First we have SCP-2680, which contains three different versions of the SCP documentation. I'll have to warn you though that this one is pretty disgusting. The first describes it as an anomalous viral disease resembling smallpox, with symptoms including the formation of irregular pustules, inflamed spots, lassitude, and delirium. No known cure for this disease exists, and the pustules that form are quite different than normal. They form on both a subject's extremities and outer bodies, but also in internal cavities such as livers and intestines. Additionally, the pustules are filled with a greenish mixture consisting of pus and alcohol. These pustules continually swell with fluid until they burst, thus spraying the immediate area around the victim with fluid, which is the primary way by which this disease spreads. Infected patients also tend to chew on their own pustules to cause them to burst, consuming some of the liquid in the process which they describe as a soothing way to cope with the disease. The fatality rate of SCP-2680 infection is greater than 90%, with death typically occurring after 30 to 50 days, compared to the 10 to 16 days of smallpox victims. Death is caused by the rapid and immediate bursting of all pustules both inside and outside the body, causing the body to explosively rupture. A report from the MTF captain when they first encountered the disease explains that the team was well suited to hearing rumors about awful diseases that turned men into ghouls or dissolved them, so they took their reports with a grain of salt. The reports brought them to a small farming village in Missouri, where they were told that the town doctor was dead from the disease, along with most of the rest of the town folk. One girl was in quarantine in the clinic, but the rest of her family had fled. The team entered the remains of the clinic, which had largely been burned down, and found a locked trap door to the cellar. Breaking the lock, they found the basement filled with scorched human bones, rows of beds blown to smithereens with empty husks of bodies left in the ruins, looking like they were popped balloons. The girl that was still alive was in the far corner of the room, festering in her own filth, riddled with pustules that she was gnawing on. The team tried to communicate with her, but she simply continued chewing on herself, and the team was very concerned that her family that fled was also infected somewhere. The girl died three hours later, swelling up before exploding as the team ran. Returning to the basement, they found it covered in blood, pus, and alcohol. 
They bagged the remains of the body, burned down the rest of the clinic, and left. Two weeks later, one of the team became infected, despite their precautions, and after two weeks in quarantine, he exploded as well. At the time, in 1891, it was estimated that as many as 30% of smallpox victims were actually infected with SCP-2680, and it was recommended that mandated euthanization be the best method for containment. By 1896, however, they had found a cure for 99% of cases, combining alcohol with the secretions of some sort of redacted creature. That was all pretty horrific and disgusting, but this version of the document was marked as erroneous in 1919, leading to the creation of a second version of the document. They learned that the anomaly isn't the disease itself, but a form of alcohol that causes the disease when imbibed. The pustules created by the disease contain more of this anomalous alcohol, which is how it can easily spread. In most other ways, the disease is quite similar to smallpox, although it is not a fatal disease on its own. Victims of the disease develop a chronic urge to pick at and eat their own skin, storing the skin inside of their digestive tract for around three to six weeks. At this point, the victim will defecate a mass of dead skin in the shape and texture of a glass bottle. They will then proceed to fill this skin bottle with the liquids contained in the pustules, at which point the victim will seem to recover from the disease. The victims will be under the delusion that this practice will cure them of the disease, but symptoms return after 24 hours. They also believe that the liquid from the pustules can cure the illness, and seek to spread it to as many people as possible. In 1918, an infected employee at a distillery in Minnesota contaminated the entire plant with 2680, spreading the disease to the neighboring towns. 453 people had to be euthanized, and much of the region was incinerated by the Foundation to contain the situation. The Foundation actually began working with the Chicago Spirit to help contain things, as I mentioned that a cure had been found which involved alcohol mixed with some sort of secretions. Prohibition was well underway in the U.S., but they needed to spread this alcohol concoction as much as possible, which is where the spirit come in. An individual named Roland McDell gave a testimony in 1926 discussing the operation. Actually handing out the alcohol was the easy part, as the organization had the illegal selling of alcohol completely handled in the U.S., and simply mixing in the component handed out by the foundation wasn't much trouble. The trouble was from the fact that word went around about the Chicago spirit working with the authorities, with the foundation basically seeming like a government agency. It took a long time to even convince the members of the Chicago spirit to go along with it, let alone the people at all the speakeasies. For a while they simply brought in alcohol from Canada and laced it with the component from the foundation, rather than brewing the concoction from scratch. It seems that around this time, the spread of SCP-2680 was truly rampant among those that drank alcohol illegally, and so it didn't take long for people to figure out that only those drinking a certain brand from the Chicago Spirit were not getting infected. That's when the competition became interested, none of which were as big as the Chicago Spirit, but each could be a threat. A number of these competitors involved anomalous individuals themselves, and when the Chicago Spirit teamed up with the Foundation, they really became aggressive. 
According to Roland, however, magic don't mean squat when you're staring down the barrel of a Thompson. A raid by a group Roland refers to as the Leadheads, possibly connected to the Church of the Broken God, left 12 of the Chicago Spirit members dead. In retaliation, they launched a counter-raid led by Chapel himself, which involved dumping a barrel of acid over their leader's body, melting him completely. They turned his remains into trophies for their bars in order to send a message. Roland also says this as a message to the Foundation, that if they try and pull something on the Chicago Spirit, the Chicago Spirit will pull right back. Things seemed rather under control then, with the Foundation handling the anomalous ingredient that prevented the virus from spreading, and the Chicago Spirit handling the alcohol transactions. This lasted until 1933, it seems, with both the end of the Chicago Spirit and the end of Prohibition in the US. The third and current version of the SCP-2680 document describes the anomaly as an unidentified species of macrovirus that resembles bottles of various types of alcoholic beverages, most commonly Bud Light and Coors Light beer. The bottles and bottle cap are composed of silica and anomalous forms of carotene, while the liquid inside mimics the physical properties of alcohol, but is composed of various proteins and stem cells. The liquid causes intoxicating effects similar to alcohol, but also causes the imbiber's esophageal tract to widen and converts excess esophageal tissue into specialized glands that produce the 2680 fluid. Infected individuals also pick at and eat their skin, gradually consuming the skin around their digits, limbs, and torso. After six weeks, they will regurgitate consumed tissue in the form of a bottle, and fill it with regurgitated 2680 fluid. Once they have produced six filled bottles, they will start the process again. They will also experience anterograde amnesia, believing the bottles to be store-bought alcohol. A Protestant community was discovered to be completely infected with 2680, with young children producing bottles in the form of Coca-Cola and Fanta brand bottles of soda. It would seem that the virus is continuing to evolve and learn how best to spread, so even though the Chicago Spirit did some good work with the Foundation to help curb the spread in the 20s and 30s, they didn't eradicate it. So yeah, that was all pretty disgusting, and it's not like the Chicago Spirit were helping out due to any sort of altruism, but more due to not wanting to lose valuable customers. Let's look at some SCPs that the Spirit actually used themselves for their criminal activities. SCP-3138 is a phenomenon in which human corpses are somehow inserted into printed works of published fiction. The nature of the work can vary from poems to novels, but the work must consist of a narrative capable of describing the presence of the corpses. The corpses can be recovered by destroying the work or removing the text describing the presence of the corpse, at which point the corpse will suddenly reappear. The corpses themselves are non-anomalous, but show signs of decay similar to that of extended submersion in an acidic environment. A paperback copy of Great Expectations by Charles Dickens includes a section in which two characters pass through a room in which three smartly dressed corpses are hung up on the bare walls, their attire dark and unusual. One of the characters shushes the other and urges them forward, and the narrative moves on. 
After recovering the three corpses, only one was identified, an accountant with known ties to a mob boss active in Chicago during the 1920s. A copy of The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald includes only a single line, mentioning seven additional corpses next to one already included in the novel. Only six of the corpses were able to be recovered, with four of them identified as known associates of Al Capone. A 1912 edition of Collected Poems by Edgar Allan Poe includes two changed lines that mention the corpse of someone named Beverly Queen. The recovered corpse couldn't be identified, but a missing persons report had been filed in 1932 for a 17-year-old girl named Beverly Queen, who had been living with Richard Chappell. Apparently, the Chicago spirit found a pretty clever way of hiding bodies that didn't involve dumping them into the river. The foundation still has no idea how they managed to put the corpses into the texts in the first place. Although the sale of alcohol was prohibited in the U.S. from 1920 to 1933, there were plenty of places where you could illegally get a drink, generally referred to as speakeasies. Although they generally tried to keep things quiet, they were often raided by police, but due to their profitability, they continued to reopen across the country. It's estimated that there were somewhere between 30,000 and 100,000 speakeasies operating in New York City alone by 1925, a number of them ran by organized criminals. The Chicago Spirit, of course, controlled a large number of typical speakeasies in the Chicago area, but when Chapel wanted to move into the New York market, he decided to keep things extra quiet with SCP-3855. 3855 is a two-story building located in Manhattan that operated as a Chicago Spirit speakeasy from 1921 to 1930, known as the Secret Spirit. Chapel had somehow given the establishment anti-memetic properties, meaning that the name, location, and purpose of the building could not be recalled normally. If visited, the memories of their time there would simply leak out of a person's head. There was a trigger phrase, however, that if heard or read would nullify the anti-memetic properties. This phrase was, I heard about Chapel's Manhattan Point. This anomalous secrecy worked for many years, with the Chicago spirit being very careful about who to provide the trigger phrase to. The managers of the bar wished to expand the concept to other speakeasies in Manhattan, but Chapel vetoed the idea saying that he got this far in life by being careful. If they fill New York with speakeasies that nobody can remember going to, people are going to start noticing. In 1930, one of the co-owners of the bar was arrested by the NYPD on an unrelated charge, and was offered a reduced sentence by the police after learning about his Chicago spirit affiliation. He accepted the deal, spilling the beans about the secret spirit, leading to the establishment being raided and shut down. The co-owner was relocated to Maine as part of a protective custody program, where he lived for two years before suddenly disappearing one day while walking home from work. His hat and jacket were left behind on the ground, with a note in the jacket pocket reading, Nice try. You can't hide, snitch. Selling illegal alcohol is all well and good but sometimes a group as large and powerful as the Chicago Spirit needs to pull off a big score, and for that, you pull out some heavy hitters. 
SCP-638 is the designation for a crew of five individuals that performed a heist in 1914 while working for the Chicago Spirit, under the direct leadership of Richard Chappell. Each of these six individuals were anomalous, with Chappell of course being a powerful reality bender. Louis Bagel Bernstein was a pyromancer. Mads Moody possessed anomalous strength. Giuseppe Permanto Fiori was anomalously persuasive, and the Chinese twins Ah Num and Ah Tom were both thaumaturges. The heist they pulled off in 1914 was the theft of 2,000 short tons of gold bullion contained in the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. The Chicago police, with assistance from embedded foundation agents, managed to apprehend the five criminals, but Chapel and the gold were gone. Embedded Foundation agent Chad Pick interviewed the five individuals to find out where Chapel and the gold had gone. Bagel Bernstein starts out pretty casual during the interview, although he says that he's just as scared of Chapel as everyone else, despite working with him. He also isn't that worried because he didn't kill anyone during the heist, so he'll avoid capital punishment, and he can go and pick up the gold after he gets out of jail. Pick asks him why he thinks that none of the other guys have the same idea, and that one of them might get out of jail a little earlier to get the gold first. This makes Bagel sweat a bit, and he tells Pick that he burned through the vault door, but the twins were responsible for using magic to move the gold out of the bank, so they know where it is. He figures that Chapel must be planning something, even though it seems like it all went wrong. Next, Pick talks to Moody who says that Bagel and Chapel planned everything out, he was just the muscle. He does reveal that Giuseppe helped get them into the bank in the first place, because he knew a strega, a witch employed by the mafia. He and Chapel made a deal with her, although Moody doesn't know any of the details, and they ended up with some small bottles of liquid supplied by the witch. Apparently, if they drank this liquid, everyone else would think they were bank guards until they did something to make them think otherwise. Moody doesn't really know much else, although he doesn't trust Bagel or Giuseppe. He believes that Chapel was never actually in the bank with them in person, probably using some sort of anomalous ability to just appear that way. After they burned through the vault, he disappeared into thin air, and they were soon after surrounded by cops. Speaking with Giuseppe, Pick asks him about the deal they made with the Striga. He doesn't know what Chapel offered her, or if he just intimidated her, but she did require some things from the people they wanted to impersonate, including hair and blood. Giuseppe doesn't know where the twins moved the gold, but he does know a little about magic, and knows that they don't possess the power to move that much gold outside of the city, or even that far from the reserve. He believes the chapel is working with the twins to make off with the gold, leaving the rest of the group stranded in jail. Pick moves on to speaking with the twins, only one of which can talk. Pick demands that they tell him where the gold is, and Ah Tom suggests that perhaps Pick has some sort of personal stake in finding it. They want to make a deal, since they'll never find the gold without the twins' help. Pick mentions that one of the twins' tongues has been cut out, and Ah Tom asks how he knew that, to which Pick says that Bagel told him. Ah Tom then says that the group was given seven bottles from the Striga, not six, and asks the agent to parlay. 
Pick orders the stenographer out of the interrogation room, and the rest of the interview is not transcribed. The next day, Agent Pick failed to clock in, and his apartment was investigated, finding the door blown off of its hinges and the interior in shambles. Detective Pick's corpse was discovered stuffed into a closet, and in an advanced state of decomposition, dead for at least a week. Tufts of hair were missing from his scalp, and he appeared to have died from blood loss. Further investigation found the bodies of the Chinese twins stuffed into a large garbage receptacle in an alley behind the building, both dead from gunshot wounds to the head. What happened here was that in addition to the six bottles they were given from the Strega to allow the six of them to masquerade as bank guards, a seventh vial was given to Chapel to allow him to secretly masquerade as Agent Pick. After they entered the vault together, Chapel disappeared and reappeared as Agent Pick, unbeknownst to the group. He then conducted interviews with them in disguise, partially to determine if any of them would snitch on him, but mostly to determine where the twins hid the gold. After the twins realized who Pick was, they made a deal with Chapel off the record, but once Chapel had the gold, he murdered both of the twins. The Chicago Spirit is just another interesting and unusual aspect of the SCP universe, taking something that is normally a mundane aspect of human history and making it extraordinary. Gangsters during the Prohibition era are fascinating enough to warrant plenty of fictional and non-fictional works, but adding in that secret spice of SCP to the mix just makes things even more exciting. The Chicago Spirit, like every other group of interest in the SCP universe, is a work in progress, with more and more entries being added about them as time goes on. They are technically a defunct group nowadays, although there's talk of a resurging group known as the Chicago Spectre that's following in their footsteps. For now though, I hope this has been an interesting look at one way that normal modern history can be made quite paranormal. <laughs>